0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and now, Radio Joe
1: Hughes. And welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, it's episode 689, and this week we welcome Scott Walden, the COO of VetCorp. For his perspective on the current state of the restoration industry, we're going to focus a lot on an article he wrote recently called The Squeeze. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can do the show. Check out also afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. After the show sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsight.com. Our association sponsors... The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. TSI dot com Stunbelt Rentals Stunbeltrentals.com Healthy Indoors magazine, healthyindoors
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lapoteur, Florida IAQ Solutions in Winter Springs, Florida, It was first to identify the law of thermodynamics, which states that if two systems are in thermal equilibrium with a third system, then they are in thermal equilibrium with each other as the zeroth law of thermodynamics. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, February 3, 2023, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Who is credited with the first use of the term Sergeant Major? Back to you, Joe. All right.
1: So today we've got Scott Walden. He's the chief operating officer for Team VetCor LLC and Vetcore LLC, a veteran manned and managed insurance services franchise company, Specializing in emergency services for property damage, Scott served in the United States Army from October of 1983 until his retirement as a sergeant major in November 2006. Welcome, Scott. Great to talk to you.
2: Uh, thanks so much, buddy. Glad
1: to be here. Thanks for the invite. And Colin, you're in from Tampa, Florida, the headquarters of Vet Corps, correct?
2: That is correct. Yep.
1: And what, what, uh, what kind of got guy- you interested in the restoration
2: world? Well, I didn't even know the restoration world existed, quite <laughs> honestly, many years ago. Um, our current president and CEO, Paul Huzar, uh, and I served in the military over 37 or so years ago. And the, um, the airborne engineer portion of the military is a pretty small group, so we knew each other our entire careers. Paul retired here in the Tampa area, and he had the opportunity to apply for a, an engineering management position. He's a professional engineer, and in the process of doing that, he uh, he established a bromance with the gentleman who was offering the opportunity, and said, "I don't, I don't want you to be an engineer for me. I want you to be the president of this notional restoration company, Vetcor, and." <clears throat> And uh, and that's when it started, really, to uh, to escape from a long story. It was incorporated on Veterans Day, 2013, and um, and here we are today. You know, originally just uh, an individual uh, restoration firm, uh, and then expand to three offices, and now as of 2019, we are a franchising company who's who awards, trains, and sells franchises.
1: And you've got franchises now in nine
2: places. Is that accurate? Yeah, eight different states. That is correct. Yeah. Um several here in Florida, and then eight different states, mainly around the the southeast, uh, but as far up into um uh Kingston, New York, and and our latest, which is gonna open in Mobile, Alabama, here very shortly. Okay,
1: interesting. I see you've got one that looks like Cincinnati. John has the the map up on the uh <laughs> up right now.
2: Yeah, that is uh, Vet Corps of the Miami Valley, covering just north of the Cincinnati area, but also into Cincinnati. He is one of our uh, newest franchises. He is a um, he's a Naval Academy graduate, then um, worked in the civilian sector for a long time, and he has joined the team as, as a franchise with a couple of territories there.
1: Interesting. And is that Louisville, I
2: see? That is Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington. Okay. Yeah, he is. Interestingly enough, he is one of our only um, non-veteran franchisees, uh, but certainly a, a veteran supporter. And uh, he got interested because he was in. Uh, he was a former adjuster, and he was on a continuing education session that I uh, that I performed, and he fell in love with that and the fact that I kind of nerded out on the science of it. And uh, and that started the bromance with him. Interesting.
1: Cliff, let me turn it over to you.
0: Thanks, Joe. Um, well, you know, let's get into uh, really the, the, the meat of the article. It, it caught my attention and also caught uh, Pete Consigli's attention. Actually, Pete saw it before I did and and sent it to me and uh so let's go kind of into the history of of what they call insurance program work can you kind of tell the audience
2: uh what that is and a little bit of the history of it sure now a lot of this is from my perspective but yeah, i, I think that you. perspective has got some credibility in the fact that um that we really built our original three offices on program work because program work in the state of florida is a uh, is a much more reliable source than potentially in other states well, what I have learned is in the past uh, as insurance companies try to protect themselves from the bad actors, you know essentially the restoration industry is even though it's fifty plus years old, it's still kind of it's in it, in its infant stages, and there's a lot of folks out there who don't uh, embrace education and the standard of care, so as insurance companies try to protect themselves. Um, from the bad actors, unscrupulous companies, well, then they started forming their own internal preferred vendor networks. And they would they would hire a vendor manager and some other staff. And so claims would come in and this, um, you know, this stable of uh, contractors of different trades that they had vetted and put some trust in uh, would then service those claims as they came in and uh, handed to them directly from the carriers. <clears throat> good concept got it uh and it and when it when those concepts first started those were good solid business relationships uh, and it made sense well you know even though i am not a fan of the uh the third party administrator the tpa uh, firms who, who have inserted themselves I, I have to applaud the business model for sure so here is a, a firm who says, you know, hey, insurance carrier, I will, I will find the contractors, I will vet those contractors, I will hold them to a performance standard. We will administrate your claims for you. <clears throat> you simply provide uh, your guidelines, and we'll hold the contractors those guidelines. And oh, by the way, we'll do it for free because we're going to take a cut from their invoice. Uh, On the back end, and that you know, if you're a carrier and you think, okay, I don't need all this vendor management staff now, and I've got a I've got an organization who is staffed and has a function to manage our property claims for us, it it was hard to say no for most of them. Even the ones who had good solid relationships with their own contractors, uh, it was tough for them to say no to that. Now, you know that has. That has grown from, <clears throat> from an initial third-party administrator to now there are a whole host of different third-party administrators, uh, each vying for the love of the carriers um, for at least some kind of portion of those claims. And that's how, that's how they earn money from, from the backs of the contractors doing the work. Joe? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I wonder, are there still companies that do it the old way?
2: Oh, Absolutely. I can't I can't really answer so much, um, you know, for all states. But if we look at Florida, uh, the the Florida market where I grew up operating here uh, is a completely different animal from most other states. There's over one hundred and seventeen individual carriers in the state of Florida. And the market is so completely fractured because uh, in the 2004, 2006 time frame, when all the big dogs said there's too much risk in the state of Florida, we are out of here. Well, that was left with uh, a huge gap. And that was filled by independent mom and pop companies, smaller companies who grew to service uh, Florida only. And so there are still several of those that we serve here in Florida um, that we have the one-on-one relationship. And those are by far the most valued. You know, we kind of spoke off air briefly about, you know, our support of the recent hurricanes and and because there are still more claims that are going to come in that any one single contractor can service, well, then that gave us the opportunity to rack and stack these different sources uh, by order of, you know, who we would want to serve the most. And sometimes it was just a financial decision. Who's got the highest fee, who's got the lowest fee. On top of the list, always go the, con- the, uh, the carriers that we service, outside of a third-party administrator. They are on the top of the list.
1: Interesting. And and what are the pluses and minuses of working with these TPAs? I mean, there's got to be some pluses.
2: (laughs) That's a good one. because (laughs) I'm, I'm trying hard to figure that out as well. And, you know, when you're asking somebody who has been on both sides of it, somebody who's worked directly with carriers, and then somebody who has to work um with carriers through a TPA when i try to look at at any potential pluses of a TPA from a contractor perspective which is what you're asking i'm going to be honest with you joe there are none there there are none if if uh if i can get claims directly from my relationships with carriers that's the way i would prefer to do it now i guess I guess in today's market, if there was a benefit uh, to TPAs, it's the fact that, that yes, because they've inserted themselves, I no longer have the ability, even during a storm, to go directly to many of the carriers uh, because they are sheltered by the TPA. So that is the only way to get claims from them is through those. So is that a benefit? Yeah. I mean, in a way, I would have to say yes. Well, do all of your franchises do TPA work? Uh, they do. Uh, for us, um, you know, for a brand-new franchise, one of the keys of their success is because of the relationships that we have built and the reputation that we have built, um, we, are, we are able to get a brand-new franchise right out, of, right out of the gate credentialed with many of the TPAs to start getting claims which they otherwise would not be able to credential with or get claims independently because they wouldn't meet the minimum time and business or financial requirements. So as a kickstart for them, absolutely, we do, we do turn them on um, to the opportunity to credential with several different TPAs to start getting work right away. It you know, sounds like work. Go
0: ahead, Cliff. No, no. You know, back to the TPA thing. You know, I think Joe asked you a question before, and I think you answered half of it. You know, uh, he asked you what were the pluses and what were the minuses <laughs> of, of working with the TPA? And yeah. you said, you know, there there are little if any pluses, you know, what are the minuses?
2: Well, that's the easier question okay. to answer <laughs> for sure. Cliff. Um, You know, number one, it's an an added expense. They have inserted themselves, so there is a cost of doing business when you're working with TPAs. There is, in addition to the network referral fee, the fee that the TPA retains from your invoice, the amount of unnecessary claim administration that has to take place to scratch their itch uh, is unbelievable. Uh, Not only on a daily claims basis, but compound that, you know, by X number of claims that you get during a storm. And very few of those requirements are relaxed by the TPAs uh, during cat events. So, you know, that no one is staffed for a major event. Uh, but when the requirements don't lax, then, um, then you know, contractors are forced to uh, to take on significant additional expense in order to hire temp staff in just to administratively keep up with the demand of the TPAs. Now, it's, that's a huge demand on a daily claims basis as well, but even more significant uh, during a storm. And and it's a minus uh, because, you know, if I'm servicing that same insured as a non-preferred vendor of a TPA, well, I, don't, I don't have those administrative requirements. And technically, that carrier could care less when the insured was contacted, when the actual start date was, when the actual completion date was. They want to know that we service the client according to the standard of care and that we had a fair invoice. We don't have all that other administrative requirement. They don't need a 24-hour report from us. They don't need a a photo report in exactly this format and a huge narrative. There's just all those additional requirements. Now, let me add on the additional costs not only the network referral fee uh, do we have to pay to be part of the program, but you're gonna have a pretty significant uh, annual renewal fee with many of these. And sometimes it can be based on the volume and sometimes it's a flat rate. So that's just your cost of being in the program itself. Um, Now, as, as more and more TPAs emerge and each are vying for more of the market share with the carriers, well, then each are trying to distinguish themselves as, you know, the best, and this, and we offer that. And right on the backs of these folks are these, um, you know, software developers who are coming up with this, you know, these supposed uh, mitigation evaluation programs or, or or programs that they are claiming, you know, will add value to both the contractor and to the TPA and the carrier. And you know, in my opinion, it's just another cost. And they mandate those. Um, mm. And I'll, I'll call out Mika right now, 100%. Mika has managed, the folks at NextGear have managed to strategically insert themselves into this process. And because of that, Mika is mandated for numerous TPAs and numerous carriers. And Mika is a burden. It's expensive. Um, if you consider it from a franchise or State, which is why I would mentioned kind of off air on change management. You know, every time a TPA wants to uh, insert a new or mandate a new software program. Well, if I'm just an individual company, that's not a big deal. But if I've now got to take this new product and institute that across a franchise system. Well, then that's a that's a significant emotional event, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Some are going to buck up against it, some aren't, Um, but they're unnecessary. They are flat out unnecessary, and not only are they unnecessary, they're an additional expense for which we are unable to recoup any funds. Every single bit of that expense comes off the top of every single job, and it's an expense that a non-preferred vendor, somebody who went and also served as Ms. Johnson, doesn't have to, they don't have to shoulder that expense. They don't have to use MEGA. They don't have to use any of these other programs. They can use whatever they're using. And again, as long as they are servicing the insured for the standard of care and producing a fair invoice, they don't have any of that additional burden. I've got a couple follow ups.
0: Um, Let's um, do you, the third party administrators, get involved with your fire claims as well? And is it the same level of? you know, documentation and reporting and administration?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, TPAs will get involved in almost every trade for which you are credentialed. Um, the exception being a lot of them, and I'm not sure exactly why, Cliff, a lot of them um, don't insert themselves into the mold remediation process Um they won't. They won't evaluate those estimates. Uh, they'll really. That's that's when they allow you to go directly to the adjuster, and and there are, there are only a few TPAs who will actually issue you a mold remediation assignment. Uh, many have steered away from that. But fire contents, every single bit of that. Yes. Do, do you think that
0: the policy limit that some Insurance carriers have instituted for mold claims may be the reason. you know some some carriers in some states may have a $10,000 limit or a $30,000 limit or
2: whatever. So yeah. that could be considered a small claim, I think, to maybe a TPA. Um, well, you know potentially, uh, and then I would I would tend to agree with you if that was the case across the board. but if I look at um, if I look at alacrity, one of the larger TPAs. We will get mold remediation assignments directly from them for various carriers. But if I look at contractor connection, what used to be and perhaps still as touted as the largest of the TPAs, they don't handle mold. So it's 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 not standard across the board.
1: Scott, in in the article, the squeeze you gave an example of a two thousand dollar, which is you know probably fairly common or maybe even a little low. But a two thousand dollar project, and you kind of broke down what the costs were to your company, by because of going through a TPA. I wonder if you could give our, our audience a little idea of you know how much money are we talking about here?
2: Yeah. So in that, if if I recall, in that example, I use one of the one of the worst, not the worst case scenario by any means, because. Um, You know, if if I'm if I'm given the opportunity to call out the worst of the worst here on this show, I definitely will. But in this particular example, uh, this was a State Farm claim through Alacrity. And from Alacrity, you're going to get hit with a five point five percent network referral fee and a nine dollar and ninety five cent assignment fee right off the top of the invoice. State Farm, for some reason, feels that they wield enough power where they can demand for program vendors a 10% discount on all equipment charges on that job. Okay. Now I, I, I gave, you know, I, I gave an example that I think 70% of that, that um, $2,000 job was in equipment rental. And, uh, and then, you know, yeah, provided a, um, you know, provided the number. So if I take a peek at that, you know, so you had a, uh, Yeah, well, in this case, a 6% network referral fee of $120 and $9.95 for an assignment fee, and then the 10% mandated discount on equipment, $140. So that means that that $2,000 estimate, what's going to get put in your pocket is $1,730.05, which is a 13.5% burden um, right off the top. Now, if our franchisees are doing that same job, Okay, well, then they've got this built-in 13.5% burden and throw another 8% for royalties and marketing fee on that. And now you've got 21.5% burden on a job where um, where the margins on water jobs just don't support that. And they make it – and I didn't even add some of the other ones. You know, if this was well, a yeah, that's Yeah, that's Nicole what I wanted to job, ask. You know,
1: you mentioned some other costs like buying the program, the the, the computer program for the estimating, and, and those don't seem to be in that um, in that cost estimate or the, the costs.
2: I mean, you could you could certainly uh, you know on an on an annual basis you could amortize the cost of uh, you know the the program fee, the twenty five hundred dollars or so it takes to be you know, you can take that across the number of jobs you had for a given period. Um, you know, this one could have also been a requirement of MECA, and there's going to be a per claim, you know, Mika cost in this one, in addition to the subscription fees that you pay monthly uh, to be part of Mika, and the additional monies that you have to pay for each additional carrier that you add into the MECA program. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And so when we talk about That part of the squeeze, those are the administrative costs that you get hit with right up front. Now, you take take the second part of that squeeze, and that is where these carrier partners are now going to institute estimating guidelines that are infinitely more restrictive than a, than a, a restoration company outside of a program would have to adhere to. And I'll give you a perfect example of that one. And you would think as a veteran-owned organization, we would love USAA to no end. And I love the concept of USAA. I love helping USAA customers. But USAA, well, first of all, if I if I kind of frame this out real quick, in the estimating program, for nearly every line item that you can select, there is a during hours line item and an after hours line item. And those after hours line items are typically around 30% increase from during hours. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, USAA, no matter when you service that claim does not allow any after hours line items. Hmm. Now, come on, you know, it, it's the what same about, with, with what about holidays. Form.
1: Do you get anything extra for holiday work?
2: For all carriers that allow after-hours charges, yes. So anything after 5 p.m., holidays, weekends, all of those are considered after-hours. But if you perform a USA mitigation job as a preferred vendor on a Saturday, then you get a single after-hours charge, and that is the emergency service call. Every other line item you use, you are not allowed to use after-hours line items. And so when I talk about that squeeze, I'm like, come on, these are the very entities that you put your arms around and credentialed and said you wanted to satisfy the insured's needs and you wanted us to save you money on claims, but yet you continue to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze those folks who are already saving you money from not producing inflated, outrageous, unscrupulous invoices.
1: You know, Scott,
2: we've talked about
1: this topic, I'll bet, 20 times on this show. This is the first time it's kind of really sunk into me as i'm not a restoration guy i'm from the indoor air quality world by going through those numbers now it's finally starting to sink in i'm starting to understand a little better why there are so many complaints about this whole system cliff go ahead let me let me let okay
0: so let let me ask you a
2: question uh scott where what role do standards play in this Standards govern the actions every restoration company should um, should perform on every job. The The interesting thing is, and I'm glad you bring this one up, Cliff, because every time I teach an IICRC course, I talk about this specifically. I hear all the time, I hear all the time from people, oh, I will never do program work or, you know, or work directly for carriers because they tell you what you can and can't do on a job site. And I I will tell you what, I am the first one to raise as high as I can the BS flag on that. Because if you look at this thing systematically, insurance carriers are in the business of mitigating risk. TPAs are not going to inherently accept risk. So if you so narrowly think that insurance carriers or TPAs are going to tell you what you can and can't do on a job site, well, then you're misguided because they're not going to accept that responsibility by telling you what you can and can't do. Your responsibility is to perform for the standard of care. What a TPA or a carrier will do is tell you what they will and will not pay for. They won't tell you what you can and can't do. That's your responsibility to perform to the industry standard of care for the trade that you're performing and nothing can make you do otherwise. Okay, so let's go back, okay? But doesn't the industry
0: standard of care tell you How much equipment you can use, what type of equipment you can use, where you should put it, and I mean, correct or or incorrect? Uh,
2: Partially correct, partially incorrect. Okay, Okay. what's incorrect? So so it will provide the general guidelines for the calculation Mm -hmm. of equipment to use initially. And Mm -hmm. in most cases, it is an absolute best guess best educated guess but it is not um it is not the bottom line so it will tell you uh it will take you through the calculation of how much dehumidification to use initially how many air movers to place but it's within very narrow guidelines it does its absolute best um and the programs oh, provided out oh, there okay. are uh, built off of that
0: okay i, I understood so l- yeah. let's just take the same job okay, okay. And we have six different restoration water damage restoration companies that look at that job. Okay, Uh, would you agree that if you're if you're doing this according to industry standards? that the estimates are pretty much going to be in line with one another because they use the same calculations for sizing equipment. They use the same calculation for determining the number of air changes and air movers and so on and so forth. Okay. So what that does is that creates parity. In my opinion, that creates parity in the marketplace and takes you from being a knowledgeable restoration professional to being a delivery man for rental equipment. They, well, they, they, did, take, they take much of the other stuff out of it. You know, in the old days, in the old days, uh, what, what happened was it was really up to the contractor what type of equipment he bought. So you, if you invested in bigger, more powerful dehumidifiers, you could dry the job faster than someone who was using standard equipment. Did you understand what I mean? And and, and the standard yeah. has taken all of that, in my opinion, from what I've seen, the standard has very much taken a lot of that choice away from the contractor. In the old days, the contractor called the shots. And I believe the contractor still called the shots in fire restoration. Uh, I don't believe they call the shots in, in, in water damage. I think the standard calls the shots.
2: Yeah, well, I, I I I've been chomping at the bit to jump on this one. <laughs> um, and when we when we look at this, first of all, that that job that you see right there in, in the example, the one we talked right. about, um, that same job, uh, I would I would have to first say that uh, I absolutely do not agree that the invoices would be in line um, because it depends. Is the person doing that? A program vendor. Well, then they're going to be estimating that job per carrier estimating guidelines. It is typically going to be more restrictive. If I'm not a program vendor and I have the ability to add uh, additional line items, or if I if I'm not restricted on how many days I'm allowed to uh, include in the estimate for the amount of monitoring, or if I'm not restricted by uh, X, Y, or Z, or if I'm if I'm one of those. Um, well, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. that The job we just looked at to do a peer review on, um, it, the company who performed it was about 80 miles away and on their estimate was a $1,000 deployment fee. So, no, the estimates are not going to be the same across the board. Now, let, now let me jump on the next part where back in the old days, uh, the contractors got to call the shots. Listen, technology back then and the science of structural drying uh, early on in this industry were garbage. People did not understand structural drying. We did not have the technology we have today in order to find out, adequately find out what was wet, how wet it was, and once it was dry. And we didn't understand the science of drying. We didn't didn't understand vapor pressure differentials and uh, vapor pressure in general. And so folks were shooting from the hip. And yes, did they think that they you know if they stuck three or four more dehumidifiers in that job because they were calling the shots the job was going to dry faster? Well, technology and studies have shown these days that, that is that is systematically incorrect. more dehues inside a job are not going to make materials evaporate faster because dehumidifiers, in addition to providing some temperature to the room, their job is to collect the evaporated moisture that other methods to get the stuff dry are supposed to uh, are supposed to take place. so the standard itself now more based on the, and keep in mind this is coming from a contractor who owns a for-profit business. <laughs> the standard itself is based on now more of the science of applied structural drying. It says based on some um, uh, based on some mat- mathematical computation, that um that you should need this much dehumidification initially okay so yes is i guess technically is that no longer the the contractor calling the shot you know that has given the contractor some parameters on how much is needed initially and then the contractor has to be smart enough throughout the evaluation process to see if that best guess was good or if they need to add additional the biggest Part of a contractor's argument with the standard these days is with the newest versions that came out that um, that provide a calculation for the amount of air movers to use. Now, the standard will never tell you where to put them or what type of air mover to use. The standard could care less. <clears throat> the standard doesn't even tell you what type of dehumidifier to use. It simply tells you the amount of dehumidification required. So, but contractors bucked up the most on the formula for calculating the number of air movers. And it's not uh, its not perfect by any means, uh, but in the history of histories, has an adjuster ever pushed back on the number of air movers you had on a job? Everybody wants to tackle and, and estimate reviewers want to home in on the amount of dehumidification that you're using and try to cut that down. And And those who don't understand the standard, those who don't understand the science of drying are unable to properly defend themselves and they're simply then just sitting back complaining about a young estimate reviewer incapable of going outside their left and right limits putting restrictions on them those contractors who understand the science of drawing and understand the the standard itself <clears throat> are more efficient and more profitable than those who don't traditionally
1: hey let's go to halftime john when we come back i'm sure cliff you're going to be first up. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, industrial hygiene and safety interested in defining their science acgih.org aiha healthy workplaces a healthier world aiha.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no-rush fee, AEMLinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at SunbeltRentals.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Healthyindoors.com. All right, let's jump back into it with Scott Waldencliff. You're up. Thanks, Joe.
0: Okay, uh, Scott, um, where to begin? Okay, I, I was in your neck of the woods, uh, I, I guess, last week. And if I'm not mistaken, that's what they call climate zone one. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there's something like seven climates. Is that right, Joe? Seven climate zones? Yeah, nine, four, somewhere nine. around there. Okay. There you All knows? right. So we take the IICRC standard and we put it into seven or nine different climate zones. You know, what effect does climate have on that?
2: uh okay well let's let's try to unpack this one because that's uh that's an interesting question when when we're talking about water damage mitigation then uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it to the interior of the home for right now because that's where the vast majority of these happen now when I'm talking about the interior of the home i can i have the responsibility to control the climate the atmospheric conditions inside the home so when I'm inside at least initially then then climate zone doesn't have an effect on me. What What does have a, an effect on me climate zone wise is when I start having to remove the materials and start affecting the building envelope, uh, then I've, then I've got a whole bunch more to contend with. Um, that is, you know, I don't, I don't have that, that concern here in Florida, but when we, especially during this latest freeze, when we manage some of our franchisees that are going through that, then, you know, the, Big swings in climate there can have a huge effect on on uh, on what's taking place inside the building. I'm not sure if that's what you were alluding to there, Cliff, or if I answered the question. Well, no, I I I
0: think that you know uh, in climate zone one, not only is the climate different, the construction is different, the materials are different. Um, not many homes in Tampa probably have basements, and and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. You know, so there's a whole lot that there's a whole lot of differences. So it's tough mm-hmm. when you try to put one formulation for everything. So that, that's that's really my my point. And I think mm-hmm. I and I don't necessarily blame insurance companies. I think they wanted some idea of controlling costs. But the but the calculations that you speak of were not field calculations. The calculations that you speak of, for the most part, come from uh, controlled environments I- inside of buildings in which someone constructed a drying house or a wet house or whatever. You know, many of these homes are inside of a of a warehouse or whatever. So the, it's it's not really a real life. Scenario, because what happens is when we take these statistics or when insurance companies take these statistics and put them on a commercial project, those calculations go out the windows on these commercial losses uh, they never have enough equipment, they never have enough air changes and and so on and so forth so
2: yes you know, so- yeah it's a good it's a good point you're making that that um in general the um this you know the standard there's not a separate standard for residential versus commercial certainly and and I do completely agree with you on that one what I would say is is you know the interesting part about this is is our ability these days compared to when the standards were even first being initially developed is our ability to evaluate um evaporation potential or vapor pressure differentials which throttles 100% the evaporation effort uh the drying effort in general and the industry's understanding of how things dry um has advanced so much that you can take those same principles and and then even those contractors who are shooting from the hip or maybe not even maybe it's not even fair to say shooting from the hip um, using their own, you know, original judgment on how much dehumidification to have and how many air movers to put, they can still be using. They should still be using the same principles of vapor pressure and vapor pressure differentials to check their performance and to know if those initial calculations they used, whatever scenario, whether it is commercial using deskins or whether it's a big residential or whether they formed a drying chamber in a crawl space or a basement the in the end their ability to uh to measure their performance today is greater than it ever has been the the issue we have industry-wide is that folks have not embraced uh getting training and understanding the science of that part of, of applied structural drying and and so you know if if you go into a a, a water damage project and on day 1 your your target material is at 60% moisture content and you come back a day later and it's at 48 well for years we've just said okay good i made progress everything's cool my my grains per pound have gone down my dew points gone down all my measurements have gone down and moisture content's gone down i'm tracking but we never had the ability to know if okay it, was that good enough did I set this drying environment up the absolute best that I can? And we didn't have any way to tell. We didn't have great instruments back then, and we didn't have institutional knowledge of what right looked like, really looked like. And uh, and today we have that. So regardless of the standard, regardless of what the calculations in the standard put out, uh, vapor pressure and vapor pressure differentials are king. And those, understanding those, are your justification whether you're a preferred vendor whether you are just a regular contractor outside of program work performing those tell you whether or not you have that environment set up perfectly you know, let's I, I i think that
0: um you know as far as the industry learning about drawing um i, I agree that the industry learned about drawing but the information that they learned has been out there for many, many years. They just didn't know where to get it. They didn't know who had it. And they yes. just, okay. So let's talk just for a minute about mm-hmm. the dry the drying chamber. You mentioned that. That's really one of my pet peeves, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are taught to set up this drying chamber. So what they do is they go into this room and they kind of make the room airtight and they have their, they put their equipment in there and they're, there are a number of different reasons why they do it. And so, you know, we don't want contamination to get out or, uh, you know, we don't want to lose the humidification. And in my opinion, the reason that they do this is I want to see more water in the bucket uh, rather than, than anything else. Because if, when you create a drying chamber, there's, you have another choice. Another choice is, In most of these water losses, the rest of the building or the rest of the home is drier than the area that was actually affected. And that is a that's a key source when you're talking about vapor pressure or uh, it's a tremendous source. And if you take the room that you're in and you put it under a slight negative pressure, maybe three or four hundred CFM, and you leave the door open to the rest of the house, in my opinion and in my studies that I've done and conducted, I can dry it faster than someone who doesn't do that because there's a lot of additional energy that you can take care of uh, and, and dry air and, and lower grains in, in other parts of the home. But they're just, you know, so, the, you know, I think the answer on many of these situations is, is it depends and and what happens is when you have a standard of a written standard, it doesn't take all these things into consideration. It can't. And you, know, you have course. these general guidelines and so on and so forth. So that's
2: really, you know, that, that's my beef with it. And, yeah. I don't, I, in many ways, I don't disagree at all. Cliff. I'll be the first one to admit. And I teach my students that the standard isn't perfect. It, it gets better all the time and it's certainly better than it was a long time ago. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of folks out there, because we have a standard, there's a lot of folks who use that standard to their advantage. And just because the the, you know, the ANSI, IACRC S500 discusses drying chambers, well, you know, now you can have uh, two bedrooms with a Jack and Jill bathroom between them. And you will have some contractors that, that will put a DHU in one bedroom, a DHU in the other bedroom, and a DHU in the bathroom and close all the doors and say he's got three drying chambers. You know, as opposed to someone who would who would do it intelligently and say, "Okay, with a, this size dehumidifier, I could I could easily get you know the same effect um, by just creating one large drying chamber." So some take it to the extreme. Uh, I got it. I get it. Um, you know, at, unless we're talking about, and here everything we're talking about here is a category one loss, uncontaminated loss where you can you can have a lot of flexibility with either establishing or not establishing drying chambers you know where the standard really puts its foot down is whenever we're talking about contaminated losses and then the engineering controls that have to be in there to separate affected from unaffected areas and and I think we would would both understand why that happens but yes for a for a category one loss uncontaminated I mean you're you're really wide open to make those kind of decisions, whether you want to isolate that or not isolate that. But I, I agree with, uh, with what you said about using the rest of the home and kind of the thirsty air in the unaffected area. It makes sense.
1: Let me, Let me uh, uh, go ahead, right, Cliff, go. and then we'll go to roundup. You can okay. do one more and then we'll go to the roundup.
0: Okay. Um, you know, one, one thing, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to suggest it. Do you guys have your own training facility? We do. Yes. Where, where you do it? Uh, can you describe it to me? Uh, where do you? What's the building like?
2: Is oh, it- you, you mean like an IICRC flood house? Yeah, something like that. No, 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 yeah. no. We don't. We have a training academy here, but we do not yet have a uh, have a flood house. The one that we've used in the past is the one they have up there at the Reed's Dry Academy up in Sharpsburg, Georgia. And that particular, fit, you might be familiar with that, that facility. It's, um, it is a, it's a pretty atypical um, ICRC approved flood house, uh, which for teaching ASD. So it's going to be elevated. It's got a crawl space, a comfortable crawl space. Um, you know, it's, it's uh it's going to have, various types of floor coverings and wall coverings and different cabinetry and hardwood flooring and all the things that are required to be taught during ASD. So that's uh, that. Just, well, I guess I just have one question.
0: When, when you're, you're there, did they float carpet at all?
2: They did. Yes. Okay. They, they taught floating carpet. Yes.
0: Okay. Did you ever see what happens when you introduce smoke, when you're floating carpet? I haven't seen that. I'd be interested what? What do you see? No, no, you need to do that. You need to buy a little smoke machine. You need to try that because it'll change. It'll kind of change your mind, I think. And I think that's one of the things that happens in water damage training. You know, we talk all about air, all about air movement. And no one, you can't see where the air goes unless you have smoke. When you have smoke, you can see where the air goes. Mm -hmm. You can see where the air doesn't go. And it really opens. Uh, I'm going to send you some uh, photos a little bit later. You know, yeah, I'd
2: love, comes. I'd love to see that. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of floating carpet myself personally, but it is still taught today in ASD. Yeah. Now, that's where we're different. I'm a big, I'm a big fan floating guy for sure. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm main, I could tell you, I'm mainly not a big fan of it because almost all of our carpet is over concrete here. Okay. Oh yeah. Well that yeah. Well that has a little little different animal.
1: I guess. Yes, it is. John, let's go to the roundup, buddy. Mm-hmm. We well, really want to thank Madison IAQ. Uh good good group of folks there. And then uh we'll be talking to them again here real soon. But Scott, I, I guess my my question for the roundup is What about the restoration industry has surprised you? You know, coming from a military background, was there anything that kind of just took you back and you went, wow, I I never expected that from this type of business?
2: Uh, Well, quite honestly, what surprised me the most is when we started operating our third office down in South Florida. And what surprised me was the level of, and the amount of just cowboy unscrupulous contractors down there operating totally outside of any kind of standard any kind of guidelines and uh and that really took me back i thought all right these are supposed to be legitimate businesses and i you know i don't experience that in 23 years in the military and i didn't experience that in my first post military employment so it was my first exposure to folks who were just just unscrupulous and just bad business people. Interesting. Cliff.
0: No, no. I just, um, you you know, I, I respect you. I respect what you're doing. Uh, I've just been around a long time and, uh, you know, I get a little crotchety sometimes.
2: So. <laughs> that's <laughs> don't good. Take I, part, um,
0: don't take it personal. I'm here, no, I, I'm here to I help you. I enjoy just going
2: time. off to right. going off of the beaten path a little bit because that's that's great, man. I don't know it all by by any means. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. You know as well as I do, Cliff. The standard was written by a bunch of old dudes that have been around for a while, and um, mm-hmm. and we need this industry needs some young bright motivated minds to go in and really take a hard look at this thing because it's the same old dudes who keep making minor tweaks from this version to this version to this version, some based on science, some based on um, old crotchety folks getting their input into it. But uh, I think it needs a fresh look.
0: I'll I'll tell you, um, you probably, if you Google search us, uh, look for, a guy named Lloyd Weaver and IAQ radio. You'll, you'll probably get a kick out of that show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Hey, let me, let me ask one more thing. Um, before we wrap this up, there's a 2021 restoration industry benchmark survey. And I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the key points that came out of that survey.
2: Yeah. The latest survey that came out was, uh,
1: for 2022, I guess, yeah, huh?
2: was was not surprising at all, and and I feel it's because of you know, a lot of the points that I made in the squeeze. Um, not that, not that what I I don't want to get that. I want to make sure I'm clear. Not that what I wrote has any effect on the industry, but I think those things I wrote about are why um, the number of contractors are their Percentage of contractors that are participating in TPA programs um, has remained about the same, um, but the amount of work that is being performed for TPAs has significantly decreased. Oh. Um, most uh, most folks right now that I speak to uh, would be very, very comfortable with about, a, we'll say a 25% program work and 75% non-program work. Um, some kind of healthy mix. Uh, some would even like less than that. Um, and that's, that's a pretty big difference from, from years past and why are more and more and more folks doing less program work? Well, because it's harder and harder and harder to make a profit doing it.
1: I wonder, Scott, do you, do you guys do much work? That's not insurance work. You don't get any payment from the insurance uh and, and does, do, you, do you worry that such a large percentage of your work is insurance-based?
2: Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And any company who has too many of their eggs in one basket should be, uh, especially when it comes to the insurance market, which is, which is hugely erratic. You know, they could come, you know, legislation could happen next week that says, um, you know, insurance companies are no longer to have preferred vendors. You know you don't know when something like that could ever happen, so anybody who puts too many of their eggs in one basket is uh is at risk, and so yes we um any I, we do certainly based on our military background, we do a huge amount of work out on McDill Air Force Base and other franchisees do a huge amount of work on some of the military bases close to them. That's a bit unique to us because of our ability to have uh those connections but but Folks, folks need to have a good balance of where those sources of income are coming from between residential, commercial, program work, non program work, non insurance related work. Uh, for those who are going to be, and I'm, I would imagine you'll see your most successful organizations are ones that have a really good balance. Hey, Joe, if, if, if I
0: might, um, I, I heard something very, very interesting uh, last. Uh, I guess it must have been last Thursday, actually. It happened to be in your neck of the woods, Scott, down there. And I attended a, uh, a three day event that dealt with building science and also dealt with uh, hurricane response and so on and so forth. And one of the speakers is a guy named Peter Crosa. Peter Croso is a very well respected uh, independent adjuster. He's past president of the Independent Adjusters Association. And, so on and so forth. And he happens to attend uh, events kind of on, on both sides of the fence. He goes to insurance company events, goes to, you know, industry events. And the one thing that he's found out is insurance companies don't like, and don't trust restoration contractors. He's also kind of found out that restoration contractors don't trust insurance companies. And, one of the interesting things he talked about is what insurance companies are now doing uh, in order to deny hail claims. And he kind of went through uh, situations where previously roofs would, you know, would be replaced without any question. You know, now the insurance companies are hiring engineering companies and so on and so forth to make inspections and report that, uh, what's wrong with these roofs after hail? is just normal wear and tear, and and so on and so forth. So again, I think that contractors want to make a dollar and hold on to it, and also so do insurance carriers.
2: And I sure. think and I think they're probably better at it than we are. But
0: uh, yeah, no, you're way. absolutely right,
2: and that you made some good points. And you know, interesting, and what gave me a a different perspective on the insurance industry from starting and working this in Florida so much, which is, which is a unique animal for sure. Uh, you know, some fun facts here, and I might not have the percentages exactly, but it will paint a clear picture of why Florida is a case study for all kinds of things going wrong in the insurance market. Uh, the state of Florida has over ten percent of the entire insurance property insurance premium in the U.S. Now we certainly don't have of the population, but we've got 10% of the premium. What the state of Florida also has is over 70% of all property damage related litigation in the U S. Right. Okay. So when we talk about the insurance market and insurance companies trying to shelter themselves from the bad actors, when I talk about the bad actors, they're also the ones who take advantage of current litigation and are super litigious because it's so easy to be in the state of Florida. And um, you know, Contractors in general in the state of Florida, whether they are good or bad, have played a big part in the upset of the insurance market in the state of Florida. Insurance companies have as well by um, by just trying to battle horrific litigation, which is, by the way, recently been some decent, well-served litigation that was passed that I think is going to help quite a bit. But it did give me a better perspective as to. Why insurance companies? And let me just caveat this by saying that our uh, our original partner, the guy I talked about early on who offered Paul Huzar the opportunity to be the president of, um, of vetCorp is the same guy who founded uh, Florida Peninsula Edison Insurance in Florida and then sold it off and is the current owner of Verde Insurance in Florida. So we have the unique perspective from both sides, getting this guy in our ear and saying, hey, man, here... Here are the issues, you know, and he sees both sides because he's invested in both sides. So I've got a real good idea of, you know, why things occur, at least a better perspective uh, of the insurance market. And some of the things you say, Cliff, are absolutely true. They are things that used to be covered on a regular basis with no question. Uh, Now, just in order to survive, if you look at the number of companies in Florida that have gone insolvent, insurance companies have gone insolvent recently, it's scary. It is. It is definitely scary. And so are each of them trying to find ways to insert policy language that is more restrictive to protect themselves so they can survive? 100 percent. You know, it's a business just like we're in business and each of them are trying to hold on to the dollar. And I agree, Cliff, they're a hell of a lot better at doing it than we are. That's <laughs> for sure. TPAs are, you know, TPAs are digging into our pockets, not theirs. You know, we've got a battle with that. that.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think another thing I would mention is that I believe that and I understand that Florida is looked at kind of as the the first in the nation. You know, so other states may follow suit um, and insurance carriers, other insurance carriers that maybe aren't in Florida are probably looking pretty closely at what goes on there, which leads me to this question, Scott. Florida recently passed some changes to. The insurance laws, I guess, uh, that that I think are going to, that were designed to help the insurance carriers, I believe, because there were a lot of claims coming up and and assignment of benefits and so on and so forth. I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on those changes? Uh,
2: The biggest change and the hardest one to get through. If If you look at the legislature in the state of Florida, it's made up of lawyers, as in many states. And one of the worst pieces of legislation we had was called the one-way attorney fee. And in the one-way attorney fee, if, uh, well, first of all, we had the whole assignment of benefits deal. And they, previous legislation kind of put the kibosh on that a little bit. Um, this legislation uh, essentially outlawed it. But when we had the assignment of benefits, then essentially a contractor could put them su- themselves in the shoes of the insured. and. Um, and really drive the train on the claim to include the ability to litigate. Uh, well, because of the one-way attorney fees, if that contractor was awarded even a small portion of their original invoice, uh, well, then the losing party, which was going to be the insurance company, had to pay all attorney's fees. So if if you're an unscrupulous contractor, or, or even if you're a sound contractor who was going to debate a rather large invoice from an insurance carrier, well, then sue them. Because certainly there's no jury out there who's not going to offer award you at least a portion of the invoice hmm. for the work you performed. and And you're totally incentivized to do so because you don't have to pay your own attorney. Hmm. And that caused over 70 plus percent litigation in the state of Florida for property damage claims. And most of that was initiated by the contractors. Hmm. And of course, throw in public adjusters, and they're, they're rampant in Florida. But you know, all of those would get in cahoots. Uh, public adjusters who had, um, you know, contractors under their belt, and then it's then it's just then it's just game on after that.
1: Interesting,
0: Cliff. Final thoughts. Final questions. Um i um, I guess one other thing. I, I think this new legislation, according to uh, if I'm mistaken, according to CROSA, uh, also uh, isn't that great for policyholders. It takes a few things away from policyholders that they previously had. I, I, off the top of my head, I, I don't remember exactly uh, what they are, but it, it, you know, it, it, you're right, mm-hmm. Scott. It did strip you know, back a, a lot of these uh, things that were used to abuse insurance companies. But uh, policyholders also suffer uh, as well with that. Yeah, and, and what with one of the, the other things that, if I'm not mistaken, Croesus said, were a lot of these insurance companies that were just in Florida went into business to kind of fill the marketplace after you know the larger companies pulled out, and a lot of these companies were not well capitalized, oh. uh, and they also you know kind of took advantage, you know, creating policies that. You know, may not have been as liberal coverage-wise, and so on and so forth, as as the carriers, uh, you know, who pulled out. So, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I guess the worst thing, and I'm and I'm not. This is just speculation, but you know, some of these businesses, being businesses, may have gone into business uh, realizing the advantages of business failure. You know, so yeah, essentially, if, well if, you, if you collect the premium and then you don't pay the claim and then you go out of business, uh, you know, you, you know, unfortunately take some people's money with you. And uh, yeah. that may have happened as
2: well with, you know, some of the smaller carriers uh, that went out yeah. of business. But I'll tell you, as a as a Florida policyholder, <laughs> you know, I watched I watched pretty carefully that leg- legislation to see what effect it was going to have on me mm-hmm. um, and my particular property. And what I've seen is there's not going to be a perfect solution. It was a pretty good balance between uh, slightly more restrictive policies for the insured. Um, definitely stricter operating guidelines for uh, AOB and the contractors and getting rid of the one-way attorney's fees and, um, And and whatever the biggest benefit to insured is going to be inherently it's going to take some time for it to take effect is uh, lower premiums premiums because of the litigation in Florida are outrageous. And and so the the emergency session was really based on putting measures in place uh, to try to curb. Um, you know the amount of these or the the cost of these policies, because you were forcing folks out of their homes uh, who could no longer afford to insure their properties, and uh, and that was causing it uh, was causing a pretty big deal. Um, so yeah, I I think it was a pretty good balance this time. Most people, uh, you know, although some of the insurance experts uh, were pretty good friends with the former president and CEO Barry Gilway of Citizens, which is. Which was never supposed to be, but is the largest insurer in the state of Florida. It is the state-run um, insurance provider that was only born from the fact when all the big dogs pulled out. What you know? What happens when the private sector fails? Well, the you know the public folks have to have to pick up the pers- you know pick up the strings, and that's where Citizens was formed. Um, Citizens was was formed you know essentially under the model to go out of business eventually when others would take over those policies. And now it is, again, with the most recent storms, it is by far the largest carrier in the state of Florida. Wow, That's and not healthy indeed, either.
1: They were supposed to be the carrier of last resort.
2: Yeah. You know, the funny part, they're carrier of last resort. And now, today, they are the largest carrier and with the lowest premiums.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Scott, final thoughts. Anything we missed you'd like to add? Any final thoughts?
2: No, I, I, I tell you what, I... I I'm super appreciative that you guys had me on. This is I get pretty passionate about this subject, as does Cliff. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, like everybody, in the end, um, you know, I don't think there's anybody who was against a standard, but a standard that at least um, at least gets folks operating within the same left and right limits, but also gives contractors the ability and the flexibility um, to make what they think are smart you know, decisions uh, given, given the situations of each project. And, and, you know, what irritates me, I guess the most is this, the standard gives you some pretty wide left and right limits in most areas. It is the, um, it is the TPAs who have taken it to the extreme. And, um, you know, you go to a TPA or you go to even the Mika program and uh, and I'll end with a quick example, because this I'm pretty passionate about this as well. The IICRCS 500 will give you a formula to calculate approximately the number of air movers you need for a given project. And it doesn't do a horrific job on calculating for wet floors, walls, and ceilings. And it will have X number. But what a program like that is completely incapable of is assessing the entire geometry of there. Is there a kitchen island? Are there cabinets where I've got to line up air movers to get airflow there? All those other specialty situations that that you have to spend resources fighting with a young estimate reviewer who has a checklist or sees a set number in Mika, and that's the bottom line. You know, and, um, and man, that is older the older I get, the less crotchety I get. Maybe I need to turn the other way around, but, <laughs> but nothing nothing upsets me more than when I have to see my young educated estimators having to fight that fight with folks because because they just don't understand, so you know we've got a we've got a standard out there that um that gives us some parameters, but like everything else and and all associated with the a o b you know, assignment of benefits was a great idea initially. You know, you take your car; it's got damage to it to the auto shop. You're signing an assignment of benefits. That insurance carrier is going to pay them directly. <clears throat> it was used the way it was meant to be used. It's not until folks take something and take it to the extreme and twist it that it that it becomes something it wasn't supposed to be. And that's what that's what some folks have done with the standard. But your perspective, Cliff, was fantastic. I, I love that. And you've been a great host, Joe. I appreciate you guys having me on and, uh, you know, give me a call anytime you want to, uh, first of all, Cliff, anytime you want to battle on any of this stuff, man, let's, let's throw it down. Cause I'd love your perspective. You've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and I, I can learn something every day. So I appreciate you guys. Well, one thing after the show, we have what's called afterthoughts. We'll send
0: you a link and, you know, the discussion can continue there. Uh, some people may, uh, you know, want to make some comments? There was one comment, Joe, uh, from Lauren McIntyre. Uh, he said that um, the other issue, such of media blames contractors for these insurance companies going bankrupt, and uh, and he finds that uh, you know to be a little bit annoying. So you know, there's some good contractors, some bad ones, and. You know, it's tough doing business down there I had a good while I was down there I had a friend a close uh, business associate call as a condo and he needed people to uh, you know respond to it. It was tough getting contractors because a lot of these people were still busy and uh you know you have to go through this mold assessment situation. There was mold in there it takes a couple of days to to you know, to find out what kind of mold it is and so on and so forth and you know, if that job was in Pennsylvania we'd be done by now but uh, you know it's still under containment theres
2: wait wow. so it's just yeah that different. was a that was one of the very first articles that I wrote for CNr magazine was uh, as a licensed mold assessor um, the you know insurance companies can't believe that that um that for the most part I indicate an initial assessment with protocol is garbage and uh and and, and I understand why they do it in Florida to protect themselves. But if I'm a preferred vendor of yours and I'm a licensed mold remediator, um, let me have at it, man. And quite often I could care less what kind of mold it is. Well, absolutely. I think yeah. most of the, I, I don't know that, that we I have I got to get mold. rid of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, I'm with you on that one, but I got some, I got some heat from my buddies at
1: Normie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right.
2: That's, That's okay. Right. I can take it
1: hey they have their uh way of making money you 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 gotta be out in the real world <laughs> uh, yeah all right well this is radio joe saying thanks to this week's host scott walden of vet thank you scott great to see you great to meet you great to talk to you my co-host the z-man cliff slotnick john you gotta have faith at the controls most importantly our great sponsors and loyal audience we'll be back next friday at noon with the next episode of iaq radio plus
0: for iaq radio i'm spike real saying thanks for listening